Hello. My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Jonathan Wallace, a professor of psychology at the University of California at Berkeley. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Wallace. Thank you. So you received your PhD in anatomy from the University of Cambridge, where you worked with Angela Roberts and studied how distinct regions of the frontal cortex are involved in various inhibitory behavioral control in non-human primates. How did you get involved in her lab? Um, well, I guess I, uh, I began by really being interested in the, the way that I followed my research path is whenever there's been something that nobody's really been able to, able to give me a satisfactory answer about, uh, I got interested in that. So when I was in high school, uh, no one could really give me a satisfactory answer about how the brain worked. So I ended up doing neuroscience as an undergraduate. And then when I was doing neuroscience, no one could really give me a satisfactory answer about how prefrontal cortex worked. They could give me kind of a you know, hand-wavy explanation of the visual cortex, but the further forward you got in the brain, the more people just admit they have no idea. Mm-hmm. So um, that motivated me uh, for my graduate research. And once you make it, make the decision that you want to study the prefrontal cortex, you rule out a lot of options. So uh, it's a difficult structure to study in rodents. Uh, it kind of forces you to either study non-human primates or humans. Um, and I also knew that I wanted to go for a more mechanistic level, so uh, I ended up working with uh, marmosets. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so you you've really been working on uh, prefrontal cortex essentially your your entire career, huh? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody's going to solve it anytime soon. So. <laughs> it's I feel like I've got a few more years to, in there, yeah, as well. I think you're probably right. Um, so you you did your graduate work in Cambridge, but then you moved to the United States to do a postdoc in Earl Miller's lab at MIT. So can you uh, describe your decision-making process uh, to, to move, to leave uh, your, your home country and, and come to the U.S.? Yeah, there were a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason was that uh, at the time in the U.K., there was definitely a, a lot of political pressure on primate research. And uh, I was concerned that we wouldn't be able to, uh, yeah, I was concerned whether I would be able to form a you know, lifelong career studying primates in, in the U.K., mm-hmm. Uh, the second reason was that it was really a uh, an incredibly exciting time to be in the U.S. Uh, this was at the uh, end of the 90s. It was kind of the height of the dot-com boom. Uh, particularly, MIT was a was a very exciting place, and so it was it was sort of a no-brainer. The uh, the science that was being do, being done in the U.S. seemed more exciting. Uh, there was a lot of money available. And um, and I had concerns about being able to do the kind of research that I wanted to do back in the UK. Yeah. So when you were a postdoc uh, in Earl Miller's lab at MIT, you were the first to show that single neurons in the prefrontal cortex encode abstract rules. At the time, it was known that neurons in the prefrontal cortex can encode concrete rules between specific stimuli and an associated behavioral response, but it was unknown that these neurons could also encode abstract rules. Um, how did these, how'd you, what was the genesis of these experiments? How'd you end up coming to this result? So the, just to give you a little bit of a, kind of a historical context, the, yeah. um, during the nineties, the, the research in the prefrontal cortex was incredibly narrow. So people were really only focused on working memory. Uh, and that was in part due to the influence of, um, the, the, the dominant figures in the field. So 
people like uh, Pat Goldman Rakesh, uh, she she did beautiful work, but it was all focused on working memory. Um, but I w- when I was at Cambridge in the UK, I was part of a group that was also seeing prefrontal patients and the kinds of problems that they present with are not problems of working memory. Mm. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the standard tests for frontal lobe dysfunction is the Wisconsin card sorting test where you have the patients uh, sort cards according to various abstract rules. Mm. So there was a real disconnect between uh, the neurophysiology, which was focused on working memory, and the clinical work, which was focused on these kind of more high-level cognitive processes. So we had a, uh, you know, we had a good inkling that, that something more was going on in the prefrontal cortex and, uh, and that it was really a case of, you know, designing the appropriate task to be able to, uh, to, to, get, to get that behavior out of the animal. Yeah. Hmm. So I think it's fair to say that we still don't really understand how the kinds of firing patterns that you found that rep- seem to represent these abstract rules end up dynamically altering the sensory motor loop so that the same set of stimuli evoke different actions. Would you mind uh, indulging me in speculating on maybe your two favorite models about how that might come to happen? Well, I mean, part of my part of the reason I moved from uh, you know how the brain encodes rules to, to decision making was that uh, I didn't really have a very clear idea of how how rule how high-level rules could be implemented. Yeah. Um, you know, since that time, I, I guess one of my favorite models is really uh, Paul Chysik's work, which argues that there is a sort of uh, iterative process between the more high-level cognitive areas and the, um, and, and the motor areas in which they're uh, essentially dynamically interacting all the time mm-hmm. uh, in, in order to implement a particular behavior. We've also started moving a little bit more, a little bit back to that kind of work. Um, we've been collaborating with uh, Yale, Nave, and Matt Botvinnik in uh, Princeton University, looking at hier- hierarchical reinforcement learning, um, which kind of marries the work that I uh, initially did uh, with kind of high-level rules with the work that I've been doing more recently. Uh, you know, looking at reinforcement learning uh, in the frontal cortex. Um, and so we have some, so, so I guess those are my two favorite working models at the moment. Uh, hierarchical reinforcement learning essentially enables the kinds of learning mechanisms that operate, the, the sort of learning mechanisms that have been elucidated for reinforcement learning and prediction error signals. And it allows it to apply to, uh, chunks and sequences of behavior. So, um, that's one of the things that we're currently working on. But, I mean, that could explain how you can learn, learn, learn the rules, but how do you dynamically switch between the different rules, right? I mean, I mean both are interesting and important questions, but... Exactly. I mean, so, I, mean it's, it's, I think it's a wide-open question at the moment. I mean, it's essentially how do we enable... How do we appropriately wire up neurons from one area to another? And it's not just a problem... Uh, in the motor system, this is also a problem in the attention system, for instance. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, you can imagine that the same kind of mechanism underlies feature-based attention, where I tell you to focus on, you know, the color red or look look for an apple. And uh, frankly, we we don't really have a good idea. How that takes place. <laughs> 
So yeah, I guess I, yeah, yeah. I, I was I was thinking about your you know the experiments that are in this you know this paper where you show you know you show one stimulus and you also show a cue for a for for which rule they should follow and then later you show a second stimulus and he has to you know either respond when it matches or respond when it doesn't match and when thinking through the kinds of ideas that might implement this kind of dynamical switching it would seem like the things that you'd want to do might be dramatically different if you had the the cue uh, for which rule to follow with the second stimulus as opposed to the to the first now, do you agree with that i i'm i'm not sure that it would i'm not sure that it would make much difference we didn't separate the two uh we didn't separate the rule and the cue uh in the original experiment and uh you know in retrospect uh it, it, it would have been a good idea um to be honest we found that the these were largely separate populations of neurons so uh, the, the bulk of the neurons in the prefrontal cortex were encoding the rule. Um, there were some neurons also encoding uh, the the uh, picture, um, you know, the stimulus that the animal was having to remember. Um, but there weren't very many neurons that showed any kind of interaction between the two things. So right. I suspect I suspect because of that, it wouldn't really matter which order you're presenting the information to the animal. Hmm. Okay. Um, so in 2011, your lab published a paper showing that value calculations in the prefrontal cortex is dissociated into two complementary processes, one involving the current choice option and values, and the other predictions about future choice options. Could you describe uh, in a little more detail what you found and tell us what it tells us about how we make complex decisions? Sure. So we were, uh, we were really working on trying to uh, dissociate two parts of the frontal lobe. So uh, there are two areas where you find a lot of reward-related activity going on, and that's the orbitofrontal cortex and uh, the anterior cingulate cortex. Now, you can make, um, you'll find reward activity in a lot of other areas, but uh, typically you need more complex tasks. If you just strip the task away and make it a very simple choice task, uh, these are the two areas which, which really seem to be driven by, by a very simple uh, decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the goal was to try to, uh, to figure out what these two areas were doing different from one another. They have very different patterns of connections with the rest of the brain. Uh, they, they don't seem to be areas that should be performing the same function. Uh, so we wanted to try to dissociate what they were doing. Um, and what we found was that the, the orbital frontal cortex seems to carry a more um, a, a, a more of a straight value representation. So it's the, the neurons there appear to be trying to predict uh, the value of a, a given outcome associated with a particular stimulus or action. Mm-hmm. Um, now we saw that that signal was being it was it was constantly being adjusted. It was being dynamically modulated, and it was being uh, dynamically modulated essentially by the the recent choice history of the animal. So if they recently got a, a series of high-value choices, then we would see a kind of a drop-off in the signals. The, the, the volume of the signals would essentially turn down. But if they were in a, um, in a low-value environment, uh, the volume of the signals would be increased. Hmm. And that's very similar to, we interpreted it as a kind of a gain modulation of the signals. It's similar to what happens in your sensory cortex if you're in a you know, a bright environment, you turn down the luminance signals. If you're in a dark environment, you turn them up. Right, so, right. Uh, we, we, we kind of drew an analogy with that. Uh, now, in the 
anterior cingulate cortex, something very different was going off. It's a very similar looking signal, um, but it was uh, taking place at different parts in the trial. Uh, and this was essentially a signal that looked very much like a prediction error signal, the kind of things that you see in the dopamine system. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would respond to the outcome of your choice, uh, but in a way that was modulated by your prior expectancy. Mm-hmm. If you expected to receive a, uh, you know, a high outcome and you didn't receive one, you would get a different response than if you expected a high outcome. And yeah. And so um, our interpretation there is that the anterior cingular cortex is doing something uh, fundamentally different from orbital frontal cortex. Uh, those are the kinds of signals that you would really want uh, to uh, for learning. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're if they're essentially telling you whether the, an outcome was better or worse than expected, and you can then use that to, to modify your likelihood of uh, choosing something in the future. So um, even though they're very similar looking signals, they appear to have uh, different functional properties. Hmm. So going back to the or- orbital frontal cortex, how quickly it does that is that gain modulation able to be uh, achieved? How, how, you know, on what kind of time scale does, is, does the animal appear to to change its uh, its sort of baseline expectation for the kinds of fluctuations and rewards that it's receiving. This was taking place on a trial by trial basis. Hmm. I mean, it extended back a little way uh, to to the uh, uh, previous two or three trials. I mean, to be honest, the 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 trials were independent of one another. There was no need for the animal to keep track of this information. Uh, it didn't really help them make more hmm. optimal decision. Um, but nevertheless, the orbital frontal cortex was modulating its firing rate yeah. uh, based on this kind of this history response. I think if you if there was some kind of trial to trial dependency, you may see that kind of signal extend uh, even further back in time. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, so your lab has also done some work on neural prosthetics, um, mm-hmm. and I think one of the most fascinating things about these systems is that a number of labs have found that when you set up a neural prosthetic you can start with a model of how the neural activity should drive the behavior of the device. But invariably what happens is the brain seems to figure out how your algorithm is working and retunes itself to better drive behavior. Yeah. Um, so your lab has published a paper looking at the changes in the motor cortex uh, network organization as a, the result of this kind of neural prosthetic learning. Can you mm-hmm. describe uh, what you've been able to learn about this phenomenon in a bit more detail? Yeah, I should say that this is sort of a uh, uh, you know, it's more of a sideline for my lab. We actually got interested in it uh, almost from a methodological issue, actually, which was that um, the, the methods that people studying brain-machine interface use enable you to record from a huge number of neurons uh, at once. And um, that's interesting uh, from our point of view, studying the prefrontal cortex, because it enables you to start doing a fundamentally different type of experiment. All of our experiments involve training animals for a long time until there's some, uh, some kind of asymptotic level of learning. And we think that the prefrontal cortex is actually involved in, in learning, right, and dealing with novel situations. So we're potentially missing the most interesting parts of a behavior uh, because we can't collect our data set. Uh, we have to kind of repeatedly go in there to collect enough neurons to right. analyze the data. Yeah. So by being able to record everything, an entire data set in a single day, we can start looking at this more interesting part of the behavior. So we started collaborating with uh, Jose Carmena's group, uh, 
with the idea of taking the, the technology that they've been using in the motor cortex into the prefrontal cortex. And uh, Jose's group's interested in doing that as well because what we're learning about brain-machine interfaces, as you say, is that uh, the brain is essentially learning how to use them. And that raises the question as to whether the primary motor cortex is really the best place yeah. uh, putting these neuroprosthetic devices uh, because that's, you know, the argument is that the further forward you go in the frontal lobe, the more plastic and flexible the neural representation. Right, right. A neural prosthetic is not a, is not a hand. It's, a, it's, a, it's more akin to an abstract rule that the brain should learn how to follow. Exactly. So, so that's one of the things that we're working on, trying to see whether, uh, trying to compare basically uh, learning to use a BMI, a prefrontal BMI versus a, a primary motor BMI. Hmm. Um, so uh, finally, I'd just like to give you a chance to give us a bit of a teaser about uh, what your upcoming talk at Stanford will be about. Sure. Well, um, we've, we've already talked about one of the uh, projects that I'll probably be talking about in more detail, which is the difference between uh, the functional properties of the anterior cingulate cortex and the frontal cortex. Uh, more recently, though, we've gotten interested in uh, the functional properties within the orbitofrontal cortex itself. My feeling is that to really understand an area, uh, a cortical area at a mechanistic level, you have to begin with some understanding of how uh, information is represented across that cortical area and how it changes. You know, all of the areas so far that we've had success with, we've started with essentially a map. And we have like that in the frontal lobe, uh, well, in the in the prefrontal cortex. Um, so we've been looking at a couple of ideas which have argued that uh, there are axes along which information is represented within orbital frontal cortex. Uh, one of those is a, a medial lateral axis, which is supposed to be a, a, a valence representation going from positive to negative. And then another idea is that there is an anterior-posterior gradient involving a kind of more concrete representations of the posterior part moving towards more abstract representations. So I'll be talking about a couple of experiments that we've done uh, testing whether those those uh, axes of organization do in fact exist. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. Uh, and so we'd like to just close with a, with a couple uh, sort of shorter questions. Um, hmm. In the spirit of your research on decision making, what might you consider the best decision of your life? Um, marrying my wife. <laughs> I have to do that, otherwise she would kill me. Yeah, it's a good, it's it's a smart strategic decision there, and 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 maybe the the worst decision. Um, the worst decision that you're willing to share publicly, at least. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I I I think I am getting better at making decisions. So a lot of the bad decisions I made, uh, I was suppo I suppose we're in, uh, you know, in my early twenties. I definitely made some financial decisions that I look back on and think, uh, you know, I regret not, not doing them. My, my dad pushed me to, uh, he wanted me to buy a house when I was in uh, graduate school. Mm. And uh, that would have been probably the best financial investment I could have made. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't feel ready for it. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself when you were a graduate student, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I think one of, one of the things I regret is that um, sort of as sort of late at university and as I, went, as I went through graduate school, I was always a little bit scared of quantitative mm. approaches. It wasn't my, my forte wasn't uh, 
uh, wasn't math. So I essentially got into, uh, well, you mentioned I did my PhD in the Department of Anatomy, and you know you don't need a lot of math for for anatomy. Um, and I sort of regret that. I've been playing catch up ever since, and uh, I think I would hammer home to any uh, budding scientist that you have to work on your quantitative skills, otherwise, eventually, it's gonna it's gonna catch up with you. Yeah. Better to work on it in your early twenties than in your early thirties, like I. I did. Does the your department at Berkeley have any uh, requirements uh, in terms of graduate students and, and learning quantitative skills, be it math or programming or anything of the sort? Um, we do. We've started making them. We've started making our uh, quantitative requirements uh, a little bit more rigorous than, than they were in the past. Hmm. Um, certainly, back in England, um, I mean, I also feel like I shouldn't be. I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's easy to be hard on yourself. But you know, back then. Even the even compute even basically uh, the power of your computers was limited, so um, it wasn't particularly easy to do, you know, quantitative analysis, uh, at least on a desktop computer. But yeah, in England you were able to give up math uh, at a shockingly early age for a mm-hmm. scientist. In fact, I gave up straight math at the age of sixteen, which re- which really had <laughs> a, a bad move for someone who wanted to become a scientist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Wallace. No problem. And thank you all for listening. We hope you join us next week when our guest will be Dr. Ron Yu, an associative investigator at the Stowers Institute for Medical Research. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.stanford.edu slash group slash neurite-west, spelled N-E-U. W-R-I-T-E dash West.